You're listening to the podcast of Gary Meacham. If you'd like to learn more about Gary's various ministries, books, or want to have her at your next event, visit her website at GaryMeacham.com. But it is our last night, and ah, it's so bittersweet, isn't it? Uh, because you know, six weeks we've been meeting here, and that's amazing that you've committed to six weeks on a Monday, you know, to come out to the Omni and sit and listen and learn, and I have just, I've been so blessed by this gathering, and I just, I, I cannot say thanks enough to the team that has donated their time. I mean, Jeremy and Umberto are amazing. They come... Five o'clock, they're here, they set up, they take down Ali, the worship team, the prayer team, the, the greeters, people that have just really given. I just, I adore you, and you've really done something for the kingdom, so thank you for that. And I wanted to say, before we get into our, our, our study, people often say to me, so, so what's next? You know, like, what are we doing next? And <clears throat> I'm leaving a week from today for Uganda. I'm speaking at a conference there and then going to the Vine and doing some work. Um, but I will tell you that something is in the works right now, multi-church across Houston, um, that we're kind of backing and, or, and actually launching, and it's called The Table. And it's going to be a gathering. And um, so I just was speaking to some people today on it and have been having meetings. So I will keep you posted. The best way to stay in touch is probably Facebook. If you just come on with me, you know, I, I will keep you posted about that. And when we start a new series, whenever that is, I will let you know right away. You know, after you've gone, to, I got to get with my honey who's in spring training right now. And, and he's so awesome you know but i gotta get get back to see him after after africa so we'll get something going though and i'll make sure to let you know what's next okay um i feel like maybe we need to pray just to kind of get back on track here <laughs> at least i need to pray oh uh, let's 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 pray to the lord oh father thank you so much for this evening I'm just so grateful to be here, and thank you for every person that's come in this door. We know that it's not accidental, Lord, it's intentional, and it's what you've done, and we just offer this time a living and holy sacrifice to you. Holy Spirit, I especially ask that you would fill this place with your sweetness, your presence, your power, um, especially as we talk about revival tonight. Would you teach us new and wonderful things that we've never known before? And we pray this in your mighty, matchless name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, friends. Well, we've been focused on that wonderful scripture from Psalm 42.7 that says, Deep calls to deep. And we started out six weeks ago looking at how the Lord speaks that scripture as really an invitation to us that as we start kind of our life in the Lord, we're, we're in the shallows, but we're not meant to live our life out in the shallows. We're meant to go deeper and deeper and deeper with the Lord. 
And sometimes it's tempting to run back to, you know, where we can stand up and we're like, this is good, it's pretty here. I like it here. But ultimately the Lord continues to call us deeper. So over the six weeks, we've just, we've just hit on topics. Last week we talked about calling and purpose. The week before that we talked about the enemy and how he works and, and, and the strategies and the schema. Before that we talked about breakthroughs that's the night we ended up in the parking garage with the fire alarm, as some of you know. <laughs> and before that, we talked about deep prayer, deep concepts on prayer. So tonight, I, I thought it was fitting really to speak on a word that I am so in love with. I am a student of revivals. I'm a student of them. I study them. I love to see what what's happening in a region or in a church or in a place when revival starts to take place. And I, I want to just throw this out to you because everybody typically has different thoughts when they think about the word revival. How many people, and I've, I've said this before, I don't know if I've said it to this group, but how many people when you think of a word like revival, do you think of like white tents? And yeah, I see a lot of heads nodding. Like, Okay, I used to think it meant freak show, like crazy people, you know, like ah, snakes and weird things and what's happening. You know, I kind of thought that that's what revival was because I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. I didn't know that it's that word is layered all through scripture. If you really do a hard study on Psalm 119, which is one of the longest psalms in the Bible. It really covers about two or three pages in your Bible. That psalmist uses the word revived nine times. Nine. Nine times. So revival really has a lot of layers to it. And tonight, I'm going to do my best. I could literally teach six weeks on revival alone. Maybe we'll do that sometime. But I'm going to do my best to... to to impart as much as I can to you on this topic. All right, so let's start off by putting a, a little bit of knowledge around the word revival. I've fleshed out a couple of um, quotes, and Al, I think we have this on a slide, and it's on your overview. I've, I've got three quotes that I really love. No, not that. Oh, I don't have this on the right. This is on the overview. Okay. The first quote I want to mention to you in our learning is this. A period of unusual blessing and activity in the life of believers, an awakening or stimulating of the presence of God. I like those words, an awakening or stimulating. This next quote is from Charles Finney, and I'm going to talk about him in a little bit, but he was a revivalist of uh, the 1800s, and he says this. Revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It's a giving up of one's will to God in deep humility. And this is my favorite. This is by an old-time pastor. He says this. In revival, people are awed and solemnized. They meet the Almighty face to face. The hush of eternal things drowns the noises of earth and soaks into the soul. Oh, I love that. It, it, it soaks into the soul. And this is what I 
myself call revival. Revival, friends, is not an event. It's an arousing. Okay? It's not an event that you go to or something that just, ah, you know, happens in this auditorium or something. Revival is an arousing. And it's an arousing to the intimacy of God in our lives. Okay? So you can have a personal revival even if you've known the Lord for a long while. I have seasons of revival in my life all the time. But you can have an initial revival if you don't know him and suddenly something happens and, and the Holy Spirit's at work and suddenly you say, yes, I want to give my life to the Lord. That's revival. And revival can happen in regions. It can happen in churches. It can happen through neighborhoods. It can happen through cities and countries. And you've heard me say that America is not in revival right now. It has been in the past, but right now, America is not in a state of revival. But Houston is. Houston is. Now, how do we know if a region is in a state of revival? Well, you could look at statistics. You could look at, at things like that, which I'm not going to bore you with right now. But in, when a region is in a state of revival, there is a hovering of the Spirit's work. And I'll tell you, when Bobby first um, signed with the Houston Astros and we came here, which was about seven years ago, I told Bobby, I said, there is something so different about this city. This is before I knew what was going on in Houston. I would drive to the ballpark, Minute Maid Park, every night, and across was a sports bar, and on their marquee, they had scripture on their marquee. I'm like, what is this? Like, and you know, there's an openness in the schools to things that are spiritual. I was in the public schools in Colorado for almost 20 years. There's no openness there like that. There's an openness in businesses and in places, and it's, there's a reason that some of the best churches and, and authors and speakers and musicians have rose up from this city. There's, oh, I could go on and on. There's an awakening that I see when I speak around Houston. There's an awakening and a revival spirit in people because this is a city that's hungry for the truth. They're hungry for the truth. And that's not even counting the numbers of salvations and, and people committing their lives to the Lord. I could get technical and I'm not going to. All right, now, how do you know when a country is in revival. Well, Uganda happens to be in revival right now because they are recording massive amounts of salvations from every corner, from villages to cities to mountains to, to valleys. And I know personally I've gotten a chance to be a part of two crusades in the last seven years. And my first crusade there, people stood outside in the hot sun on their feet for over eight hours, no shelter, no water, no food to hear the word of God. Would we do that in America? I mean, people are rushed to get to lunch at church, after church. Like, come on, what's taking so long? But there is a revival that is so alive, and I, I, I'm, I'm just so thrilled to, to be a part of it. I'm shocked that God has allowed me 
me to get to be in a revival space, both where I live in Houston and in Uganda. I mean, it's just, it's a pleasure. And friends, some of you that live here, you may not believe what I'm saying, but in baseball, we've moved well over probably about 60 times around the country now in our 35 years of marriage. And I'm telling you that what is going on in Houston is not happening in other parts of the country. You've heard me say it, I'm just saying it. It's just not. You know, the, the openness, the hovering of, of, of God's work. It is in pockets. It is in pockets, certainly. Great churches, great places. But overall, overall, it's not happening like it is here. Okay, so what does this, what does this mean? Tonight, I want to share some stories about old revivals. And then I want to teach you in the word about the greatest revival that is ever recorded, what happened in the upper room. Okay? So let's start by thinking about some older revivals, because I love, I think there's so much in the history of revivals, and especially in our country, that we can learn from. So the first one I wanted to mention to you occurred with this guy named Jonathan Edwards. So... Jonathan Edwards was a pastor for the 13 colonies early in America's history, the 1700s, about the 1740s. And he was going to speak in a church in Connecticut. Now, I've seen a church similar to the one that he was going to speak in, in the church that one of my good friends who's an author, her husband was a pastor at this church. It was a church where George Washington went to fellowship often. These churches were so dark inside, and the pastors would have to climb up onto these high, high pulpits, way up, and there would be a little gate behind them, and they would come up to the platform, and they'd have to have a little lantern so that they could speak. And this was the kind of church that Jonathan Edwards was speaking on, speaking out, excuse me, and he, the story goes that he had been fasting for three days because he had a message that was really going to be hard to deliver. And he had been fasting for three days, no food, no water. And so before he was to go to speak, the story goes, he started to choke. He started to gag. And he was so afraid of taking a sip of water because he didn't want to break his fast because he had a message. Now, here's the thing about Jonathan. He was a terrible preacher. <laughs> he was awful. Boring as the most boring preacher you've ever heard. Like, he would get up, you could take a nap, and wake up, he'd still be going really like would read his would read his sermon in a total monotone voice so this particular day he was fasting for three days he knew he had something powerful you know what his talk was called sinners in the hand of an angry god oh my gosh good thing he was fasting right and so he took some sips of water because he knew he couldn't go if he didn't he climbs up with his lantern little jonathan climbs up to the top and he starts to preach in his monotone voice. He literally, literally, scholars say he was reading the speech. And all of a sudden, the power of God swept into that place. And it said that grown men were running around screaming in the church, which was super conservative. Like, they were screaming in the church, like, oh, God, oh, God. And they were begging for salvation. Isn't that amazing? 
That, friends, was one of the very first revivals in the United States of America, when we really weren't even a country yet. We were just 13 colonies. After that, in the 1800s, there was a huge revival in New York City. And New York in that time was going through one of the most devastating times of its history. There was an outbreak of cholera. The city was practically bankrupt. There were immigrants all, from all over the world and no food. There wasn't enough, just enough supplies for people. People had no income. It was a horrible, horrible time in our country's history. And this, this one man, and I love this because this didn't happen in a church. It happened through a guy who was trying to start up a ministry. He wanted to start an inner city ministry, Jeremiah Lamphier. And so he just started to pray, please God help us, please God help us, because he himself was poor and his family was being struck by disease, all of it. So he offered a noonday prayer meeting, which of course nobody came to. <laughs> but a newspaper man kind of got wind of it and thought it might help the city if he promoted it a little. So he started to promote it a little bit and before you know it, people were starting to come to this prayer meeting. And friends, by May of 1859, there were over 50,000 salvations in that area of New York City. And historians say that it had not been for that revival of God, our country wouldn't have had the heart for the Civil War to fight the heinous, heinous system of slavery. If it hadn't been for the heart of that revival, which swept across the country and it started in New York. Charles Finney, the guy I was mentioning, he, he then also during that same time frame was laying the framework in the northeastern uh, states, New York and Massachusetts and, um, you know, this, this just dotted across the, the coast. He's responsible for the first altar call, what we know as an altar call. This is what he would do. He would pray before he would preach, and this was his exact words. Oh, Holy Spirit, make them so miserable, so awful in themselves that they will come forward to your anxious seat. And he would have an empty chair or bench right in front of the stage. And that was for people to come up on because his prayer was that they'd be so sick of themselves that they would just come forward for the help and the love of God. And I'm telling you, it worked. I've read full books on him. He is amazing if you can ever study any of the things he's done. But here's one that thrills me. And Kyle, I always think of you with this, um, with your work with college students. In 1973, at a small university that was just beginning, which is now, I think, one of the, the, the largest Christian universities, I believe, in the world. Um, there was a group of about 30 students that were meeting in just a broken down room. Not a nice facility, not a nice place. They had a little Wednesday night Bible study and they were meeting in this broken down room. And when they were done, one gutsy young man went before the group, the other 35, and he, he grabbed the microphone and he went up and they thought everybody was done. They're kind of like, what's he doing? You know, and he gets up and friends, he starts to say to them, I'm gonna be really honest with you. I'm really not a believer. I've been cheating. I've been doing this, 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 and this. 
I'm a fake, and I don't want to live that way anymore. And so he says this, and he starts crying, and, and the, the, the other kids are like, oh, my gosh, you know. But what happened is then somebody else picked up the microphone and said something similar, and somebody else, and somebody else. And then one of them went and got the keys to get the piano out and started playing the piano. Do you know they called the senior pastor, and he got over there, and by 2, excuse me, by I think it was 6 a.m. in the morning, 2,000 people had gathered. And this was on a Wednesday. Friends, the Spirit of God was so heavy in that place, nobody could explain it, but they literally had to shut the town down. There was no school, there were no classes, there was no businesses. It all shut down, and thousands and thousands of people just went into this space to pray. And it grew and it grew. They ended up doing it in a big auditorium. And it, was, it wasn't any constructed event. It was just that the Spirit of God was there so strong. You know how it ended? On Saturday, so Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it was Saturday morning. One guy got a hold of the mic, and he went up and he started to speak, but there was an arrogance and a pride to him. And he started to talk about some of his sexual sins and some things like that, and people just listened to him and thought, oh, this doesn't sound like what we've been experiencing, and the Spirit of God just left, just left. But wow, they're saying that was one of the greatest revivals. That was in Lynchburg, Virginia at Liberty University. And this last one I want to mention, I could go on and on. Revivals are so interesting to study how they start. But I'm so in love with this because it's such a weird story. This is a revival that spread across Argentina. So a missionary was sent there with his wife. And it was known at the time to be one of the most dead places of the Western Hemisphere. This was in the 1950s. And he and his wife went. And after seven years of work, you're going to die. I think that they had eight people coming to church. After seven years of work in this region. So this guy this missionary decides to like really go after it so he tries to host a meeting a, a prayer meeting and nobody comes are you seeing that pattern sometimes like you try to do things people don't come don't get your feelings hurt if you have tried to do something like that just keep going because god is at work so nobody came so then he decided that he would devote eight hours a day to prayer and studying until he knew what the lord was going to have him do next so for a period of a couple months, eight hours a day, studying, praying. And the Lord told him the strangest thing. He said, I want you to start another prayer meeting on Monday nights. What is it about Monday nights? Something good, right? Because it's like a weird night to have something. Amen? Monday nights. Now, not at 7 o'clock. He wanted him to go from 8 till midnight on Monday nights. Oh, for the love. Okay. I'd love to send that email out, wouldn't you? Come on. Yeah. So, so three people show up. A really timid housewife, a backslidden dude, and a third guy that was like, 
kind of like a servant in a house, like a like a a house a house. A what was that, Bernie? A houseboy. There it is. Oh, good word, houseboy. So these three and the missionary. Okay. So night one of the prayer meeting, no one says a word. They have never heard of the Holy Spirit. Number one, they've heard of Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, but had never heard of Holy of the Holy Spirit. And so the missionaries like doing all the talking, all the praying, and from eight till midnight, no one says a word. Night one. Second time they meet, same thing. Only the timid housewife. This is so weird. The timid housewife says to the group afterwards, she goes, you know, I'm so embarrassed to say this because it was hard for her to talk. And she just said, I just, you see that table in the corner? I just keep getting the feeling I'm supposed to go bang on the table. And they're like, okay, you are a freak. What is that? But they didn't say anything. They just let her say that. Then they're like, bye-bye. We're done. So third meeting, nobody says anything. Nothing happens. But the woman, the little, the little, little shy housewife, I still feel like I'm supposed to hit that table. Oh, for the love. So that's the end of that meeting. Fourth meeting. Finally, the pastor, the missionary is like, you know, maybe I should pay attention to the fact that this woman keeps saying she's supposed to hit that table. As weird as that is. Right? And so, so that, that night, it gets to be almost midnight. Nobody's saying anything. The pastor goes, you know what, let's just... Let's just pray as we walk around this table. So he pulls the table out into the middle of the room, and they pray. And then he goes, let's, like, let's, let's like hit the table. So one guy hits it. The timid houseboy hits it. You know, the backslidden dude hits it. And when the housewife hit it, something happened in that room that was like the breath of God. She, it was like, they described it in the book as, as like, just like the ecstasy of God. Like, could you picture just like, oh, the glory of God coming into a room. And, and she started screaming and praising the Lord and singing and her arms were up. And that was like, whoa, you know, and, and the backslidden dude was on the floor under the table, praising the Lord, like just singing praises to the Lord. And something started to happen in that room. The wife of of the missionary was like, well, let me in on the action. And so she got in on the action. And do you know, friends, it was that night that they traced back to one of the biggest countrywide revivals ever recorded in the world. In the world. Within a couple of years of that night, hitting that dumb table. With, within a couple of years of that night, stadiums were filled with Argentinian people Praising God, it's one of the greatest revivals on record. But why do I give these varied stories? Why? Because I'm trying to show you that there is no formula to God. Right? And a revival is not an event. It's an arousing of an intimacy with God. It's an arousing. And when you cry out for revival, he will bring revival in your life in your region, in your country. He will. He will. We have to have eyes to see and understand it. So let's, let's get in the word. And I'm real excited about, about what we're studying tonight because the word is so rich on this. Would you start with me, please, in Hosea? And 
This is one of the best scriptures, I think, on the bones of a revival. Okay, we're going to go to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. Okay, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Hosea chapter 6, 1 through 3. Take your time. Don't panic. It's a Bible study. All right. Chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us. After two days, he will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. Wow. Okay. So Hosea 6, 1 through 3. Often, um, when, when something is starting to stir, a revival is starting to stir, I, I go back to these verses. I go back to these verses in Hosea because God is so well setting up what he does in the bones of a revival. First of all, he says, come, return to the Lord. And friends, I don't know, you'd have to not be human to not need some healing or some bandaging of the way that our lives get torn and wounded, right? I mean, it says that he has allowed those things in our lives, some wounding, some tearing. Why? It comes in the next verses. So he can revive you and raise you up. And those verses right there, verse 2, this, friends, is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ and the pattern that God uses of two days of kind of hell. And then on the third day, he rises again. This is a foreshadow of that. And so here he's saying he will revive us after two days of brokenness, of bandaging, of needing healing. He will revive us. He will raise us up on the third day. Why? So we will live before him. And then comes the stunningly gorgeous part. I love it because the writing is so beautiful. How he says, so let us know and let's press on to know the Lord. This, if you need assurance, here it is. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. If you are in a place tonight where perhaps you walked in and you're like, you know, I really know that my heart believes all this, but my head is, is telling me something different because I have been through some stuff. This right here is your assurance that his going forth is as certain as the dawn. Are you sure that the sun's going to come up in the morning? It always has. I'm pretty sure it will. Until God says it won't, he says, it's as certain as the dawn. And he's going to come to you like the rain, like spring rain. And friends, let me tell you this. Spring rain is different than 
winter rain, fall rain, or summer rain. Spring rain is always about something new happening. It's always new growth. It's always new happenings. It's always a new season. And if you have come into this place and perhaps you sat here for six weeks and you know that your life needs to be revived, it is happening tonight. He's coming like the spring rain for you tonight. Okay, so I love these verses in Hosea. Now, we're going to look at what I think is the greatest revival in humanity, and it's what happened in the upper room with the apostles and the women. It's what happened that night there when the Holy Spirit came and what that looked like and how that changed everything. But to understand it, you know I'm all about Bible comprehension. It does us very little good to just take out little snippets of scripture. Um, I, I like it. I'm glad that we do. But we need to understand things at a deep comprehension level. Okay? So tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you this story through the eyes of the apostle John and Peter. So John and Peter were the leaders of the, the first church. And James was as well, but James kind of took his leadership role a little bit later. But John and Peter were the right-off-the-bat leaders of the new church after the upper room. And so for us to really understand them, I need you to understand how human they were. So we're going to take a peek at them pre-upper room. All right, just, just a quick peek at, at their relationship with each other pre-upper room, all right, because I think it'll encourage you that they are just like we are. I mean, they struggle with the same things we do, you know, and so flip with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, and we're in John chapter 21, John chapter 21, so friends, this is that weird period between when Jesus died on the cross and and before he ascended now let me let me under let me do some teaching on on just some of the chronological order of what happened so Jesus dies on the cross okay then he appears to people for about 40 days before he ascends the day of Pentecost was 10 days after he ascended. All right, now, Pentecost is actually a Jewish holiday. Who knew? I mean, we always thought it was a, like a, it was a Christian day, you know. But it was actually a Jewish holiday. Pentum means 50. And so from the day of the Passover, remember when Jesus had the Last Supper with the disciples? From that day to the day of Pentecost, was 50 days okay so our first scene with peter and john and jesus is during the 40 days before the ascension all right so you guys know that peter denied jesus three times you know that whole story like and then jesus i love that he made breakfast for them on the beach is that awesome or what fish, bread. I bet you there was honey with that bread, too. I just bet there was. 
You know, he made a little charcoal fire. And that's the story when, you know, the disciples are out in the boat fishing. And then um, one of the disciples says, it's the Lord on the beach. And Peter like dives into the water, swims to shore. You know, it's that story. It's that story. And Jesus, like only Jesus could do and would do, he restores Peter for the three times that he denied him. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, love my sheep. You know, it's that conversation. Now, right after that, Jesus says to Peter, come on, let's take a walk. Okay, so right after that. So I want you in your minds to picture that Jesus and Peter are walking down the beach. You got that? They're not in swimming trunks. Okay, that's a weird mental image. Why did I say that? Okay, now, verse 18, John chapter 21, verse 18. Here's Jesus speaking to Peter. Truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. All right, now, we know that Peter and Jesus are walking down the beach. But the funny thing of this is, is, is that this is the gospel of John. John wrote this. And only in the gospel of John does John refer to himself always as the beloved disciple. The one that Jesus loved. Like, in other words, like, I'm the favorite. And he says it all the time. You don't see that description in any of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Only John. Now, here's the funny thing of it. So Jesus and Peter are having a deep, intense conversation. As a matter of fact, literally, Jesus is telling Peter, kind of in code, but telling him that he is going to suffer a lot from this point forward and that he's going to die a martyr death. And if you know how Peter died, he died on a cross. And he died on a cross and felt himself unworthy to be crucified the way the Savior was. So he asked to be crucified upside down. So Jesus is trying to kind of get Peter in the mode like, you're going to feed my lambs, you're going to tend my sheep, but it's going to be really hard. And now I want you to see the pop-up that happens in this moment. All right? So we're on verse 20. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple who Jesus loved. John, seriously. John is writing this about himself. And here's the question, why is he following them? Why? Okay, who Jesus loved following them. You know, the one who leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, what about that man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You, follow me. This is such a, a telling scene, friends. It's such a telling scene because there's always, I don't care what we do or where we live, 
or how mature we are, there can always be kind of an element of competition. Kind of an element of competition. I mean, I see it in ministries, I see it in churches, I see it in families, you know, I certainly see it in pro baseball, but they're paid to compete, but I'm not talking about that kind of competition. But you know, you see this, you see it in friendships, you see it in relationships, you see kind of this, this competition. And here we have Jesus trying to speak something so powerful to Peter, and what's John doing? Following along behind them, just in case something juicy happens, you know. And Peter, instead of listening to Jesus, if that were me, I'd want to go deeper, like, tell me more about that. Like, what are you talking about? He's looking back at John. He's looking back at John. He's distracted. And they're competing. They're competing. So let's pull up that first revival key. In revival, we are freed from comparisons and looking at what other people are doing. We're all ordinary people used for extraordinary purposes. Friends, when you start to see a revival blow across the place, you better believe that you better be supporting each other. I've been in churches where they frown upon their people going to a conference at another church. That's insane. Or they've tried to stop the new buildings of a new church. Or they, they discourage people from, you know, from, from, from participating in anything somebody else has. You know, and I've seen, I've seen authors get so jealous of another author that they won't encourage or support them. You know, or, or you see this in the workplace, people fighting against each other subtly. And because we're Christians, sometimes we, we wouldn't tell anybody. But, you know, we'll withhold, like, a like or we'll, we'll withhold some support of some kind. You know, and, and in revival, we're freed. It's a win-win. Everybody, we want everybody to get revived. Because it's not about us. It's about the Spirit of God awakening lives and regions. All right, so, so I wanted you to see this because the funny thing of it is, Peter and John were like this. And if they weren't here, they became that later, after the upper room. They were competing and a bit immature here. But guess what? This is before the Holy Spirit really came. You know, they're, they're, they're still just trying to figure this out. All right? So let's move on then. I wanted you to get a little feel of their personalities. Now just flip to Acts chapter 1. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Wow. Okay. Now, this interests me, friends, because the disciples were confused, and rightly so. They thought that Jesus was going to change the world through politics. They thought he was. They thought... And that's honestly why Judas, that's why Judas went crazy and turned Jesus in. Because he was a super, super zealot politically. And he thought Jesus was going to upturn the Roman government. And when he didn't, he thought, oh well. Oh well. You know? And obviously we know other deeper spiritual things were at work. But 
these gentlemen thought that Jesus was going to change the landscape for them spiritually through the government. And that's why they asked that question. So is like now when you're going to restore Israel? And Jesus is like, oh, my gosh, I have so much, so much deeper than that. So much deeper. Friends, if anybody in this room is waiting for the government or a government anywhere to change the world, you're going to be waiting forever. Keep praying. Keep praying for them, of course. But that's not the route the Lord has ever chosen. I mean, he uses that, but that's not where his power comes. It's not where his power comes. It comes through you. It comes through believers. Okay? And so what happens, though, and if you have your Bibles, I want you to circle this part because this is so important. In verse 4, Jesus says, wait. Wait for what the Father has promised. Circle that word, wait, or whatever your version says. Now, Al, can we pull up that second revival key? Let me read this and then do some explaining around it. In revival, there may be a wait time necessary for us to receive the full pouring out of God's revelation, understanding, or blessing. Now, this is important. Remember that God's purpose is to bring about the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people for the longest period of time. Revival jolts his purposes into play. All right, so this part right here, the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people for the longest period of time. Sometimes, friends, that means that there may be times in your life where you feel stuck. Just this week, I've talked to several women who have said to me, I'm not doing the job I feel like I'm meant to do. I feel like I'm created for something bigger and better and more. And you know what I'm saying to them? Revival is coming. Revival is coming. Where you are in your for now is not going to be your forever. It's not going to be here forever, but I can go back to seasons of my life and see how God was layering, layering things into a skill set for what I do now. It took me 20 years to get my first book published, 20. And I knew when I was 20 years old, I wanted to write. It took me 20 years, you know, and I'm not saying it's going to take you 20 years to get where you want, believe me. But what I'm saying is God is at work orchestrating and pulling together circumstances that you don't even see. A lot of times we think we're missing God and usually our tendency is to beat ourselves up. I'm not praying enough. I'm not doing enough. Other people are doing more. I'm not even in the action. All I do is just wipe runny noses and take care of kids or do this or do that or I just work at a job that seems meaningless. You know, often we're beating ourselves up. But you know what God's doing? If you have fully given your heart and your life to him, he's getting situations and circumstances ready because he's moving you into places of newness and revival. Okay? But, but we sometimes think that we're doing it wrong. But God is working what? For the best possible results, by the best possible means, for the most possible people for the longest period of time, okay? So, so I, I, I'm begging you, I, I feel for these guys because there's been so many seasons of my life where the answer has been wait. 
Wait, and I'm telling you, I've made some mistakes. I've made some mistakes, and, and some of them could have been very costly. I've made some mistakes trying to get ahead of God. I'm thinking back to um, one, one um, time, this was, I think, three or four years ago, when I really felt like we were supposed to launch into hosting this conference for writers and speakers, and, 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 and I still know we're going to do that, but I had it all wrong. Friends, we had Bob Goff coming, who's a great writer who wrote Love Does, you know, New York Times bestseller. We paid him his deposit. We had, we had a conference director that we were paying. She was doing all this work with, with the Hotel Derrick downtown. It was going to be a really neat event, and we had it moving for about a year. We had a big vision cast for it and all. Well, a year out... I knew that God was saying, not yet. Not no, but not yet. And I had to pull the plug on it, and it was a miserable feeling. I felt like a failure. I felt like, am I not listening, God? I'm scared. Is it fear? Or are you telling me this for real? You know, because sometimes it's hard to know. Sometimes you can't tell in your lives, and you're trying to do the right thing, and you don't know. So that was in January. I pulled the plug. I'm like, oh, glory, hallelujah. We're not going to get in debt. It's going to be okay. I get a call in May from Hotel Derek, who promptly informed me that Truly Fed Ministries owed them $25,000 for an event that was not going to take place. Well, the conference director that we trusted had signed some papers and we had to commit to that. So my staff, we went into panic mode, and I felt like I needed a paper bag to breathe into. I'm like, oh, Jesus, I'm such a failure. You know, because that's where I always go, I can't do this. It's too hard. I'm horrible at math. Why did you put me in charge of a ministry? I hate numbers. Like, that's where I go, you know, with it all. I feel like hideous. And after I beat myself up for like an entire afternoon, my husband comes home from the ballpark. I'm like, oh, okay. And if you know Bobby, oh my gosh, it was like death trying to tell him this. Babe, we have to pay $25,000 to this hotel. And he's like, you know, he's like, you, Ellie, you know Bobby? The man, you sometimes want to take his pulse to make sure he's breathing. Like, plus being married to me, drama queen, you know, but... I'm on the couch and I finish and I'm like, oh, and he's like, well, we have to eat that money. We have to eat it. We don't even have that money. How are we going to eat that money? And that day I've been on the phone with my staff and I started to feel kind of the string like, maybe we should use the hotel. We got to pay for it anyway. Maybe we should put a little more money into it and actually host an event that could benefit the Vine Uganda. And friends, that became our first gala. Bobby, almost up to the day, still thought we should have ate the money. But that night, he, uh, he repented to me that night because we had a gala that was outstanding. Many of you were here working it for us. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. We had salvations. We brought an evangelist in. Who gets saved at a gala? I mean, we had people getting saved. We had a billionaire get saved at the gala. I wish he would have wrote a bigger check, but he was there. I mean, for real. He was like, older people are like, we've taken him to things his whole life, and he gets saved at this event. I mean, 
You know, sometimes there's things that, I mean, I was rushing God for the conference. He turned it out beautifully, stunningly. But now we're ready to move in that area of, of a conference. It's happening now, and it's even broader because of another story I'm going to tell you later because now we're including other things that we wouldn't have thought to include then. Why? Because God is bringing the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people for the longest period of time. When he revives people in a region, this is what he does. This is how he does it. So don't beat yourself up if you're in a dead end or a dry season. Keep waiting. Now, I always say this. I believe there are active waiters and passive waiters. If you are a passive waiter, have you ever known like a passive aggressive person? They kind of like sit back and then they zing you every now and then. Zing, zing, zing with their comments. A passive waiter sits back and they might be faithful on the outside, but on the inside, they're saying things like, things work out for everybody else and not me. I guess I should keep praying. I don't know what's the use. Nothing's ever going to change, but God says to pray. I guess I'll pray. You know, that kind of like passive waiting where there's no posture of expectancy at all. But an active waiter is in a posture, ready to hear, believing, worshiping, studying, collecting scripture, planning, planning. You should see the notebooks I have full of plans. Many of them have never come to be, but lots of it has come to be, right? I mean, do it, do it. You don't know what God's going to pluck out and revive. You don't know, but if you're not an active waiter, if you're passive, you'll miss You'll miss so much. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you just as much. He loves you regardless, but you'll miss out. So be an active waiter. Jesus said to them before the action of Pentecost, he said, wait, wait for what the Father's going to promise. And 10 days went by. Okay, so what did they do in those 10 days? Were they like action-packed? Was it awesome? Was it amazing? No. <laughs> you know what they did? menial things like pick a staff they picked their staff because they were left one short when Judas took his life so they picked their staff follow along we're back in Acts again okay we're back in Acts chapter 1 verse 12 so they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olive which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. That's Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These, all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with Jesus' brothers. Now flip your eyes over to verse 23. This is when they're going to figure out who's going to take Judas's place. And they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, know the hearts of men. Show which one of these you've chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and they fell 
to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Okay, so instead of some great action after this, they go up to the upper room, 10 days are passing, they're what? Continually devoting themselves to prayer. Okay, they're praying, all right? And then it dawns on Peter, we need to fill our staff. Something so boring. But you know what? I have been so intrigued by this scripture for years about the two men, Barsabbas and Matthias. And you know who interests me? The guy who didn't get chosen. The guy who was not selected. What did he do after that? Like, was he annoyed? Have you ever been a part of something? And this happens in church circles all the time when, you know, if you don't get selected or you're not noticed or you're not kind of fleshed out or, or raised up, like, you get your feelings hurt, you know, or you want to, like, 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 just maybe leave or kick them or something. Like, it's just like, like that, you know. But do you know what I love about this guy, Justice? He went on. And ironically, you never hear another word about either of them. So it's not like Matthias rose to like some stature. You never hear anything about either of them. I believe because they were called to be servants. Servants. But Barsabbas went on into a, a huge colony. It was a Roman colony nicknamed City of the Free. And he led the church there. This is a man who was not chosen. So let's pull up that, that next revival key because this is so good. Sometimes we seek revival in an area God is not sending us. Not being chosen for one thing frees you up for something else God has for your life. Okay? Just because you're not chosen for one thing doesn't mean that God is not reviving and doing something in another part of your life. I'm going to tell you guys a personal story about this that, that tickles me to no end. It tickles me now. It didn't then. But um, you know I've shared with you so often my desire was to write books. That's all I've ever wanted to do is write Bible studies for women and speak to women. That's all I've ever wanted to do. So when Bobby, um, when his career playing was sort of cut short, it wasn't what we thought it would be with him being you know, a first-round draft pick and all that that I shared with you guys earlier on. Um, I realized quickly that I was going to have to work full-time and help bring in half of our salary because he was a minor league coach, and they make no money. I'm just saying. Okay. Don't think we're rich because my husband's still in the minor leagues right now. They don't make a lot. So I thought perhaps maybe I'd just teach a couple years. Well, 15 years later, you know, 15 years later, and then I went on to consult a couple years on top of that. So about 20 years later, I got my first book published and I was so thrilled and I thought it was going to go a certain way and I've told you this story so I'm not going to tell all the details I did get a giant book deal a book deal that you can only dream of it was a three book deal and I mean I didn't even know what was happening to me now I know but I didn't know then what was happening and 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 I was just so thrilled and so excited but I could never live up to what they wanted and I've shared that with you before and so at the end of the three-year time frame, because I was supposed to pop out a book year one, year two, year three. They took book three off the table because book two hadn't produced the way they wanted it to. And I felt like 
such a failure. I was embarrassed. I would tell authors that, and they were like, oh, oh my gosh, that's horrible. Like, and it just, it made me feel like such a loser. And plus, I have struggled mightily with insecurities anyway. And so it was one of the, the ways the Lord chose to purge a lot of insecurity out of me. And I'm so thankful for that. But do you know, friends, here's the funny thing. One night, I was standing in my office, and I have a full bookshelf full of books. And every week, I have new authors that are sending me their books that they just get published, asking me to promote and promote and promote them. And I love that. I love new authors so much. But I was standing looking at this wall of books and I literally felt the Lord speak to me because I say this to the Lord all the time I want to be where you are where's the action Lord where are people getting watered where are people going where are they gathering where are their hubs and you know what the Lord literally showed me that night looking at that 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 wall of books I literally felt him say, there are a plethora of books. I want you to write a TV show. It's like, what? <laughs> what? Like, I know nothing about TV. Zero. Nothing. I don't even know how to write fiction. I'm a nonfiction writer. I don't even know how to write dialogue, let alone a show. That, that was the most, re that was like saying, get in a spaceship and fly to the moon. Like, I could do that sooner than I could figure out how to write a TV show. But I said to the Lord, are you, did I hear that or am I dreaming that? What's the deal? But it kept coming back over and over and over again. Usually you know, when something keeps coming back to you, you know the Lord is trying to tell you something. And so I signed up for a writer's conference. It's where I got my other two book deals and I often take new writers there and I thought, well, I'll go try to learn some stuff about fiction. I don't know. And so I go to this writer's conference, and I'm sitting in this fiction track, and I don't understand one thing the woman is teaching. Not one. Totally lost. And I said to her during one of the breaks, I don't understand anything you're teaching. I'm so lost. And she said, let me help you work through your storyline. Like, I don't have one. But I knew because we had been asked, Bobby and I, to feature our lives in a, on a show. The life of a pro baseball manager, uh, kind of like a Friday Night Lights, only in baseball. And so she sat with me during the break for three hours and hammered a story out. And about 45 minutes into our conversation, I looked at her. She's a hugely acclaimed writer. Books on New York Times bestselling list, People Magazine, USA Today, all that. And I said, would you consider writing this show with me? I thought she would laugh me off, you know, the table. And she goes, let me pray about it. So a week later, she says yes. And over the course of the next year and a half, her and I finish a TV show. And then we give it to my son who is in Hollywood and he works for a production company. And as of last week, it's with MGM Studios. Yeah, so now I don't know if they're gonna take it or not. I don't know what's gonna happen with it. But it's moving. It's one of their best projects. Now, why did I do that? Because guess where people are gathered? TV. They're consuming TV like never before. We need to send writers. We need to pioneer writers into that space. Now, if I had done that conference years ago, I would have only invited people that want to write books or speak. Guess what it's going to include now? TV. Film. Film is exploding. 
Do you know what a great medium that is for people to understand the Lord and the love of the Lord? TV and film, that's where it's at right now. That's where it's at. Now, if I had rushed ahead of the Lord, we wouldn't have had this part of it. We wouldn't have had this part of it. But you know what? Sometimes not being chosen, had I completed that book deal the way they wanted and it gone the way they wanted, I never, ever, ever would have written TV. Why would I? I never would have. So, friends, I share that just to say, you don't know the intricacies of what God's doing, but don't be afraid of it. Go with it. Go with it. Let's get back and find out what's going to happen in this upper room. All right. Verse, excuse me, let's go now into chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were gathered. And there appeared to them tongues like fire, distributing themselves on them, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this occurred and this sound came forth, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing, speaking in their own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, why are not all these men speaking Galileans? How is it? that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. And friends, do you know that was 16 different languages being spoke right now, the praises of God. Look at verse 11. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? And of course, others thought they were full of wine. They're drunk. That's what people always say when they can't understand things in the word. They would always think people were drunk. But friends, this is one of the most miraculous things that has ever been recorded in scripture. So here's this group, 120 of them, in this upper room. And suddenly, at just the right moment, at just the right time, a wind starts whipping through that room. And then fire comes through tongues of fire. And I've prayed, I said, Lord, why was that the way you represented yourself in that moment? Why that? Why that? And I want you to understand this. This is so good. If you keep your finger here and just flip back to Exodus 19 real quick. Exodus 19, but keep your finger in Acts. We're going to get back to it. Exodus 19. I want to show you something. In verses 16 through 18. Exodus 19. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sounded so that all the people who were in camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all up in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire 
and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked suddenly. Friends, back in the Old Testament, often when God himself and his presence was going to shine forth, it came in fire that was external. But on the day of Pentecost, the fire came internal and forever would live inside of us now, not external like at a mountain where a blaze would put it up in smoke. But the day of Pentecost, the fire came inside a believer. That's the Holy Spirit. And it lives inside eternally, internally. It used to be external. Now it's internal. And that's why it came, I believe, in the shape of, of, of tongues of fire. Of tongues of fire. And I know, probably in a background like this, some of you have all kinds of different thinking on that and what that sounded like and what it looked like and what you believe on, on the Holy Spirit filling believers. Let's turn to one quick verse that I want to do a, a, just a titch of teaching on before we go back to looking at what happened in that room after this moment. Go to 1 Corinthians 12 real quick. 1 Corinthians 12. Okay? 1 Corinthians 12. And I want us to, to peek at Paul's explanation of how the Holy Spirit can move inside believers. Because I know people come in with all kinds of thinking. Let's look at verse 6. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another a word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills just as he wills. What does this mean for us? Well, we could teach six weeks on this topic alone. But according to scripture in the New Testament and, and all that Paul wrote, there's a couple different categories of giftings of the Holy Spirit. And for tonight, because what happened in the upper room is this category. It's called manifestation gifts. Some gifts are what we would call ministry gifts, and you can find those in the book of Ephesians. Evangelists, pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, that's, that's different. This is what we call manifestation. Manifestation gifts where you can literally sense that the Spirit is doing something supernatural in your presence. You know when this happened? I'm not going to teach on it, but you know when this happened? Just so you know, I'm not crazy and up here preaching something wacky. This happened when Elizabeth first greeted Mary when Mary was pregnant. 
And Elizabeth had no way of knowing that Mary was pregnant. You know how she knew? The Bible said in the Gospel of Luke she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she was exhibiting a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge, what we just read, where God gives you insight into somebody's life that there's no way you could know. Have you ever been trying to help somebody or even praying with somebody and you don't know what to pray or you don't know how to help them? And you just kind of like, please help me, Lord, help me, Lord. And something comes to you? That's a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. He deposits something in you supernaturally that you wouldn't have known or been able to give out. Even faith here, or some of the other things Paul lists out, are, 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 are so beautiful. The faith to believe certain things. There's some people in this room that have a lot of gutsy faith. And some of us maybe like to follow those people because we're better at other things. But the point is, as Paul said, the Holy Spirit distributes these things, what? As he wills. Let me tell you, I've tried to get Bobby Meacham, my husband, to do some of the things I do in this. Because the Holy Spirit's given me certain gifts. And, and there were years in there that I kept trying to make him pray. Like with, with, with a supernatural prayer language. Like what, what the Lord beautifully gave me when I first became a believer. And friends, I didn't even know any teaching on it. That's how I know it's real. I didn't know anything to be messed up with. I never heard any people fighting over that. It's real. It's not real. It was for back then. It's not for now. I didn't even know anything. The Lord just, just gave me that gift of intercession. You know, but I tried to make Bobby do it. <laughs> Poor Bobby living with me. That's just a hard thing in and of itself. But I tried to make him do that. And finally, he looked at me one day. He's like, babe, that is just not happening for me. <laughs> You know, and so 30, I guess it's been 34, 35 years, we just didn't have that. Do you know all of a sudden a year ago, Bobby started to pray um, with a prayer language like this? Because it was his thing with the Holy Spirit. You know, I mean, it was his thing, and the Lord distributed as he wills. Now, is this available for everybody? Yes. You don't have to be a pastor or a leader or in a certain kind of a church. This is available for everybody. You want more faith? Come on. You want to pray deeply, deeply, deeply? Tonight's your night. You want to understand this more? Grab one of us and, and many in this room will explain it to you. If you want to know more, if you've only heard weird things, it's not weird at all. Let me tell you this. If you ever see people that are acting weird and they say it's a Holy Spirit, they're weird. Because the Holy Spirit is not weird. He's not weird. Some of my friends, we were at a church once, and I got one of the best words of my life at that church from a pastor. So the church wasn't crazy, but there were some crazy people in there. And I saw these women, and they were walking like all hunched over like this. I mean, literally walking like this. And I'm like, oh, does she have a disability? And somebody said, no, she's just like coming out from the Holy Spirit. I'm like, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't walk like that, I don't think, you know? But it was like this weird stuff, and, and, and I was like, wow, okay. But what I'm saying is he's not weird. He's not weird. And guess what Paul said? If you read the book of Corinthians, Paul said, I pray in tongues more than all. And he also said, don't forbid, don't forbid it. He said that. 
So if you're in a church that forbids it, wow, you might want to show them Corinthians. But I'm not saying this is a very private thing for me. As a matter of fact, I've never taught publicly on it like I am tonight. Because it's so personal and it's so private and it's so holy and it's so awesome and it's so wonderful. And it's not weird. And when you're using all these gifts properly, you're not drawing attention to yourself. You're drawing attention to the glory of God for his purposes, for his purposes. And I'll tell you, friends, a revival has never happened anywhere where these gifts were not manifesting and working boldly, ever. It just, it just, because where the Holy Spirit's at work, this stuff is happening. People are getting well from things that they've struggled with. People are speaking truth into each other's lives. There's deep prayer. There's deep intercession for things happening. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So let's head back to Acts. Okay, let's head back to Acts where we were. And Al, would you bring up that, that I believe this is the last revival key, and it really lays over what I just explained. In revival, you may not fully understand everything you see, but keep moving forward anyways. Let me tell you, friends, those people in the upper room, those men and those women, can you imagine what it looked like to suddenly be sitting there and then all of a sudden there's tongues of fire and your mouths are moving in praises of God in languages you're not even understanding? Can you imagine what that felt like? But even though they didn't get it, they kept going. They didn't go, oh my gosh, that's just too freaky. No, they kept going. You know the very first thing that happened? And this is when you know gifting is being used properly. This is when you know. The first thing that happened is Peter. Remember him on the beach? Looking back at John? Now watch the two of them. Now watch how they've changed. Peter. Let's see what he does. First thing after this scene. All right. I'm trying to think where I want us to pick him up. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to start... I'm going to start verse 41 through 43. Friends, the minute after this happened, the rushing of the wind, the tongues of fire, the, the praising of God, Peter stands up and he starts preaching in a way that only God Almighty by the power of the Holy Spirit could have enabled him to do. Because guess what? Peter was a fisherman and he was clumsy and he wasn't eloquent. But he starts preaching with such a power because that's what the Holy Spirit does when he fills us. And this is what happens, verse 41. So then those who had, who had received his word, meaning Peter's, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Friends, I wonder, when was the last time you felt a sense of awe towards God? I hope it was like yesterday or today. I hope. I hope. Because sometimes even the smallest things can bring such awe to you. It's not often the big, big things. Sometimes it's the smallest things, a little connection, a conversation, the way the Lord shows himself to be real, the strength you have within yourself to, to do something that you didn't think you could do. 
seeing a promise come true that you prayed for for years and you're continuing to praise him even though it, it even though it's maybe not fully shown itself those are awestruck things those are awestruck things and this church is just starting to grow oh my gosh i want you to i want to encourage you to go back and read some of this yourself but we don't have time but flip please with me to one quick verse that I so, so love, that I so, so love, and it's Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Oh, I love this. Now, as the crowd observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Friends, if people don't know anything about you, but your demeanor and the way you carry yourself tells them that person has been with Jesus, your life is a huge success. Because you are literally spreading a trail of revival behind you. You don't have to go do great things, and I pray that you will, and I believe that you will, but you just love people with such an excellence that your life, it doesn't matter how untrained or how uneducated, these were just men that had no formality to them, and they're literally changing the world. Now watch this. We're going to end on this scripture, and I love it so much. We're Acts 4, and we're going to look at verses 29 through 30. 31, because what is happening right prior to this is that Peter and John, the two that were in competition with each other, are now walking around the streets and people are getting healed. And they're looking at lame beggars and they're rising them up and people are dancing and the whole crowd's kind of going, what in the blaze is happening? What's going on? And they get arrested and the authorities are telling them, you need to stop teaching and speaking in the name of Jesus. And you know what they say to the authorities? Well, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So look at what happens. Verse 29 through 31. Oh, I love this so much. Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your servants, Peter and John, may speak your word with all confidence while you do extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, listen to this, the place where they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. With boldness. Friends, can you imagine the room, this room, shaken? I mean, I can't wait to pray. I mean, shaken. And listen, whether the room shakes or not, that's one thing. But our lives are shaken. Our lives are shaken. When God revives things, he shakes it up. He shakes it up, and we're not the same. We are not the same. Any time that he brings revival, friends, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before we start to pray. 
Anytime God brings a revival to an area, there's four very solid purposes. One is to evangelize. And this is on your overview, so you don't have to write it. One is to evangelize. The second thing is to reproduce. The third is to change. And that means freedom and being released from things and a change in ourselves and in our communities. And here's the fourth thing, and it's my favorite. To turn the world upside down. Upside down. Because that's exactly how they were described by some of the religious leaders. They are turning the world upside down. That's where we're headed. Are we together? Yes. Amen. Amen. Okay. So let me ask, let me ask, um, Daniela, would you come up and just do a little bit of light piano for us? And I don't even know what to do. I'm like, this never happens, but I'm kind of speechless. I don't really, I don't really know how, how for this to go. But here's my heart. If some of you have been wondering about the spirit, like, is there more? Am I missing something? I want to understand more. like to learn more about Gary's various ministries, her books, or want to have her at your next event, make sure you visit her website at GaryMeacham.com. Have a blessed day.